What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From under the covers in room 919 at the Sofitel in Beverly Hills, California, this is Obscure Season 4. In American Tragedy, I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, international man of misery, just had the strangest experience here in balmy Southern California, the city of angels, the city I dare not tread. I'm here for the state. Been here for a day or so. We have a show tomorrow night, then on to San Francisco, the state show's have been good fun, well attended, very enjoyable, and not particularly profitable. But that being said, I'm in California for the state, right? It's around 8 o'clock at night. I think to myself, time to get some din-din, Michael. And so I, I, I don't have a car or anything here in Los Angeles, so it's got to be in walking distance. I walk downstairs, and I'm right. I'm kind of in a commercial area. There's a mall across the street from my hotel, and just down the block, what do I espy but a Taco Bell? Now, it will surprise nobody to learn how much I enjoy Taco Bell. In fact, I've attended that specific Taco Bell before when staying at this same hotel. So I think to myself, self, it's dinner time. Go get yourself some Taco Bell. But before you do that, maybe eat half an edible. All right, I will. So I took half an edible, and that doesn't factor into the story at all. And I go over to Taco Bell there, and I order some tacos, and I'm waiting for the tacos. And then another fellow walks in, and he says, Michael Ian Black. And I think, oh, no, because either this is somebody I know but don't recognize, or it's somebody I don't know and don't want to speak to. Michael Ian Black, he says. And I say, hello. And he introduces himself. His name is Anthony. He works over at Brooks Brothers. Knows who I am. 
And, you know, we, we get to chatting a little bit while we're both waiting for our orders. Totally fine. This is all in the realm of the normal to this point. But if a story takes place in Taco Bell, it's going to trespass those boundaries of normalcy. Normality. Normalcy. Normalcy. Let's go with that. And so uh, my order comes, and I sort of nod to the guy as if to say, well, thank you, you know, nice meeting you, nice chatting. And I go over to the table where I'm going to sit and eat my Taco Bell. Something that you, you may not understand about me, I do not take Taco Bell out of Taco Bell. There's a place for Taco Bell, and that is in a Taco Bell. So much of the enjoyment of Taco Bell depends on the temperature. You get it, you eat it fast. You don't take it anywhere where it has a chance to cool down. It has to be consumed immediately, otherwise you're just eating Alpo. So I sit down to start uh, eating my dinner, and the fella just comes over and is hovering at the table, standing over me, continuing our conversation while I'm sitting there with a bag of tacos, hot tacos, in a bottle of water waiting to eat my dinner, but I feel like I can't start eating while this guy is standing there talking to me. And he keeps talking and talking and talking. And then finally I'm like, well, fuck it. And I start unwrapping a taco, thinking to myself, this will give him the hint to go somewhere else. It does not. He continues talking and then they call his name at the counter. He goes to get his bag of food and I think he's going to get into his car and drive off, but apparently he has other ideas. He walks over and sits down at my table with me. Doesn't ask. Doesn't say, hey, you mind if I sit and we can eat together and we can keep chatting? None of that. Just sits down at my table and continues our conversation that I was not interested in having in the first place. Now, did I make a thing? No. I thought to myself, all right, this is what's happening. Let's make the best of it. I asked him many pleasant questions about himself and his life and where he grew up and his aspirations and all the rest of it. And then he ate his burrito and wished me a good night and did in fact leave. But I think this is what was going on. Now, you, you, may, you may disagree. I'm a man of the world. I've been around a few years and I think I understand what was happening. This fella happened to be of the homosexual persuasion, okay? and made that clear to me um, by sucking my dick. No, he just made, you know, he was what he was talking about, whatever. He wrote a play about uh, Abraham Lincoln in a relationship with John Wilkes Booth, yada, yada, yada. I'm not wearing my wedding ring. And the reason I'm not wearing my wedding ring is because I've been going to the gym and when you go to the gym and you work with, your, with the barbells and stuff, it tears up your hand. So I took off the ring and I, I forgot to put it on before we went on tour. I think the guy was clocking me and thinking, hey, Maybe I could get with Michael Ian Black if he gives me any indication that that is a possibility, which I did not do. And then finally, he bid me a good night. Pleasant fella, odd circumstance. Well, this is what happens in the big cities of these here United States. That's why you can't be green behind the ears. I don't know if that's an expression. Sounds like an expression. I know, I'm, I know there's a behind the, wet behind the ears and then green something else, a greenhorn. Can't be a greenhorn who's wet behind the ears. The reason I mentioned the edible at all was because it occurred to me that it may kick in as I'm reading this, in which case it may make progressively less sense as we go. But the point being, in these here United States, whether it's in 2023 or 1925, you got to keep your wits about you. You got to know what's what. You got to know what's happening. You got to be aware of your surroundings. Well, Clyde Griffith's mother 
Not so aware of her surroundings, you recall last episode she asked to borrow some cash from Clyde. Presumably it has something to do with Hester, also known as Esta. And Clyde has agreed to give her some money, somewhat resentfully, I may add. But he, he, he wants to know what's up. So he starts following her. And he ends up at a crummy little part of town. She's apparently looking for a furnished room for somebody. We don't know whom or what the circumstances are. But again, we suspect it's got something to do with Hesta, also known as Esta. So last, last time we talked, she was going into a house that said furnished rooms. And then without turning or seeing Clyde across the street, she proceeded to another house a few doors away, which also carried a furnished rooms card. And after surveying the exterior interestedly, mounted the steps and rang the bell. That's where we left it last time. So let's pick it up in chapter 13 in American Tragedy. Clyde's first impression was that she was seeking the whereabouts of some individual in whom she was interested and of whose address she was not certain. But crossing over to her at about the moment the proprietress of the house put her head out of the door, he heard his mother say, You have a room for rent? Yes. Has it a bath? No, but there's a bath on the second floor. How much is it a week? Four dollars. Could I see it? Yes, just step in. Mrs. Griffiths appeared to hesitate while Clyde stood below, not twenty-five feet away, and looked up at her, waiting for her to turn and recognize him. But she stepped in without turning. And Clyde gazed after her curiously, for while it was by no means inconceivable that his mother might be looking for a room for someone, yet why should she be looking for it in this street when, as a rule, she usually dealt with the Salvation Army or the Young Women's Christian Association. His first impulse was to wait and inquire of her what she was doing here, but being interested in several errands of his own, he went on. Oh, maybe he didn't follow her. Oh, maybe I got that wrong. Maybe he just sort of saw her in this crappy part of town. That night, returning to his own home to dress and seeing his mother in the kitchen, he said to her, I saw you this morning, Ma, in Montrose Street. Yes, his mother replied after a moment, but not before he had noticed that she had started suddenly as though taken aback by this information. She was paring potatoes and looked at him curiously. Well, what of it? She added calmly, but flushing just the same a thing decidedly unusual in connection with her, where he was concerned. Indeed, that start of surprise interested and arrested Clyde. I keep picturing Frances McDormand as the mother. I think Frances McDormand might be a little old right now, because I think, you know, they've got young kids, and she's probably in her, I don't know, mid-30s, late-30s, maybe even early 40s, something like that. I think Frances McDormand might be a little bit old, but I think that's who I'm kind of picturing here. I can't remember her name, of course. I want to say it's Vivian, but I don't think that's it at all. I don't know where, why I have the name Vivian in my head. Well, regardless, I'm not going to look it up. I'm not going to crank up the old research machine and look it up. Or am I going to go back and page through the book to look it up? It's his mother, and that's all we need to know. So she's, she's surprised, 
And he's like, hello, what's all this about? You know, there's secrets going on. There's subterfuge. There's craftiness. There's some undertow. And it all is bound up with his sister, I believe. You're going into a house there looking for a furnished room, I guess. Yes, I was, replied Mrs. Griffiths, simply enough now. I need a room for someone who is sick and hasn't much money, but it's not so easy to find either. She turned away as though she were not disposed to discuss this any more, and Clyde, while sensing her mood, apparently, could not resist adding, gee, that's not much of a street to have a room in. His new work at the Green Davidson had already caused him to think differently of how one should live, anyone. She did not answer him and he went to his room to change his clothes. Do you think maybe Hester is uh, pregnant, and she needs a room, and, and James Franco is like, I, I'm not going to be with you anymore, sister. Not if you're knocked up. And she's only, how old is she? I forget. 16? 15? Young. She's young. She might have gotten knocked up by James Franco, and now she needs a place to have the baby, and the mother doesn't want to bother with the charities that she's associated with because of the shame involved and all the rest of it. And that's my theory. Let's see if it is borne out. A month or so after this, coming east on Missouri Avenue late one evening, he again saw his mother in the near distance coming west. In the light of one of the small stores which ranged in a row on this street, he saw that she was carrying a rather heavy old-fashioned bag, which had long been about the house, but had never been much used by anyone. On sight of him approaching, as he afterwards decided, she had stopped suddenly and turned into a hallway of a three-story brick apartment building, and when he came up to it, he found the outside door was shut. He opened it and saw a flight of steps dimly lit, up which she might have gone. However, he did not trouble to investigate, for he was uncertain, once he reached this place, whether she had gone to call on someone or not. It all happened so quickly. But waiting at the next corner, he finally saw her come out again, and then to his increasing curiosity, she appeared to look cautiously about before proceeding as before. It was this that caused him to think that she must have been endeavoring to conceal herself from him, but why? Why? Because of the shame, the familial humiliation of a knocked-up teenage sister. Down in the dumps, the plan is probably we're going to put her up right here in this crummy room somewhere. She's going to have the baby. We're gonna, somebody's going to take the baby, you know, maybe to a home, or someone's going to adopt it and raise it as their own, and then Hester's going to come home, and nobody's going to be any the wiser about this. It was a love affair that went badly, and now she's home back in the fold of the Griffiths family. So she doesn't want anyone to know. She, she's just trying to keep it to herself. You know? She's protecting everybody. But when you're scampering around town and living in the shadows, who are you really protecting, I wonder? This spy game stuff. I mean, it's, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. I know because I watched the Tony Scott film Spy Games starring Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. It wasn't even last night that I watched that film. Well, it was. So that's a dumb expression. Oh, well, why don't we take a break? Let's just take a break before we get into the next paragraph. You know, it's late. I mean, 
I don't know what time it is for you. It's getting late here, and my tummy's full of Taco Bell. All right, taking a break. Back in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Back on Obscure from Beverly Hills, California, where we're reading uh, all about the concealment that Vivian Griffiths is endeavoring to undertake, keeping secrets from her family. His first impulse was to turn and follow her. So interested was he by her strange movements but he decided later that if she did not want him to know what she was doing, perhaps it was best that he should not. At the same time, he was made intensely curious by this evasive gesture. Why should his mother not wish him to see her carrying a bag anywhere? Evasion and concealment formed no part of her real disposition, so different from his own. Almost instantly, his mind proceeded to join this coincidence with the time he had seen her descending the steps of the rooming house in Montrose Street, together with the business of the letter he had found her reading and the money she'd been compelled to raise, the hundred dollars. Where could she be going? What was she hiding? He speculated on all this, but he could not decide whether it had any definite connection with him or any member of the family, until about a week later, when passing along 11th near Baltimore, he thought he saw Esther, or at least a girl so much like her that she would be taken for her anywhere. She had the same height, and she was moving along as Esther used to walk, only now he thought as he saw her, she looked older. Yet so quickly had she come and gone in the mass of people that he had not been able to make sure it was only a glance. But on the strength of it, 
he had turned and sought to catch up with her, but upon reaching the spot she was gone. So convinced was he, however, that he had seen her that he went straight home, and encountering his mother in the mission, announced that he was positive he had seen Esta. She must be back in Kansas City again. He could have sworn to it. He had seen her near 11th in Baltimore, or thought he had. Had his mother heard anything from her? <laughs> now, now we're going to get a tall tale from Mama Griffiths, are we not? Now she is going to conjure some fantasy, some fable. She is going to weave some web of lies to deceive her son, to protect her daughter. Or will she come clean? Will she admit to the conversations, epistolary conversations she's been maintaining with her daughter and the room she had secured for her? Let us see. And then, curiously enough, he observed that his mother's manner was not exactly what he thought it should have been under the circumstances. His own attitude had been one of commingled astonishment, pleasure, curiosity, and sympathy because of the sudden disappearance and now sudden reappearance of Esther. Could it be that his mother had used that hundred dollars to bring her back? The thought had come to him. Why or from where he could not say. He wondered. But if so, why had she not returned to her home, at least to notify the family of her presence here? Because she's knocked up, you dumb turd! She is with child. She is gravid. Are you really so foolish? You really so wet behind the ears? And green about the gills? I don't think green about the gills is uh, an expression. Oh, I think that means like you're nauseated or something. Here's a point that has... It, now, this is just a thing that has troubled me for years. Now, I, when I'm feeling peaked, you know, I will say... I'm nauseous. But apparently you're not supposed to say nauseous. You're supposed to say nauseated. Now I really am going to crank up the research machine to see if we can get to the bottom of this. It's a thing that has troubled me, as I say, for years. Because I've never understood it. And now I'm going to find out. Research machine is cranked. Difference between nauseous and nauseated. <clears throat> According to Birchfield, and this is from Google Scholar, so you know if they're uh, quoting Birchfield, they mean something. It's serious. In British English, nauseated means feeling sick, and nauseous means disgusting. But in American English, nauseous has tended to replace nauseated, while nauseating has replaced nauseous. Okay, let me think about that for a second. Nauseous has replaced, yes, has replaced nauseated, right? Well, nauseating has replaced nauseous. Well, that is nauseating. Hmm. Oh, so disgusting. That is nauseating, disgusting. Yes, it is provoking nausea. Therefore, it is replacing nauseous, which means disgusting in British English. So, it sounds like in American English, it's perfectly fine to use it. Here's from Grammarly. Let's see what Grammarly has to say. Even though nauseous and nauseated are often used to mean feeling unwell, many purists insist 
that nauseous means causing nausea, while nauseated means feeling sick. In everyday modern usage, it is acceptable to use both words to mean feeling ill. Thank you, Grammarly. No idea where I am in this book. Okay, could it be uh, read to notify the family of her presence here? He expected his mother would be as astonished and puzzled as he was, quick and curious for details. Instead, she appeared to him to be obviously confused and taken aback by this information, as though she was hearing about something that she already knew and was puzzled as to just what her attitude should be. Oh, did you? Where? Just now, you say? At 11th in Baltimore? Well, isn't that strange? I must speak to Asa about this. Well, it's strange that she wouldn't come here if she is back. Her eyes, as he saw, instead of looking astonished, looked puzzled, disturbed. Her mouth, always the case when she was a little embarrassed and disconcerted, worked oddly. Not only the lips, but the jaw itself. Well, well, she added, after a pause, that is strange. Well, perhaps it was just someone who looked like her. But Clyde, watching her out of the corner of his eye, could not believe that she was astonished as she pretended. And thereafter, Asa coming in, and Clyde not having as yet departed from the hotel, he heard them discussing the matter in some strangely inattentive and unillumined way as if it was not quite as startling as it had seemed to him, and for some time he was not called in to explain what he had seen. And then, as if purposely to solve this mystery for him, he encountered his mother one day passing along Spruce Street, this time carrying a small basket on her arm. She had, as he had noticed of late, taken to going out regularly mornings and afternoons or evenings. On this occasion, and long before she had had an opportunity to see him, he had discerned her peculiarly, peculiarly, God, that's a word I've never been able to say, heavy figure draped in the old brown coat which she always wore, and had turned into Merkel Street and waited for her to pass, a convenient newsstand offering him shelter. Once she had passed, he dropped behind her, allowing her to precede him by half a block. This is why you got it. What did I say at the beginning of this episode? You have to pay attention to your surroundings. If you do not pay attention to your... In my head, I sound like Bill Cosby, and that's just going to make everybody upset. And at Dalrymple, she crossed to Beaudry, which was really a continuation of Spruce, but not so ugly. The houses were quite old, quondam residences of an earlier day, but now turned into boarding and rooming houses. Into one of these, he saw her enter and disappear, but before doing so, she looked inquiringly about her. After she had entered, Clyde approached the house and studied it with great interest. What was his mother doing in there? Who was it she was going to see? He could scarcely have explained his intense curiosity to himself, and yet, since having thought that he had seen, he had seen Esther on the street, he had an unconvinced feeling that it might have something to do with her. There were the letters, the $100, the furnished room in Montrose Street. 
Well, yeah. I mean, look, Ted, Clyde, give your audience some credit. You're taking a long time to sort of uh, unspool this where we already kind of know where it's heading. So let's just get to it. You know, we don't need the Hardy Boys on the case here. Let's just get to it. Uh, diagonally across the way from the house in Beaudry Street, there was a large trunked tree, leafless now in the winter wind, and near it, a telegraph pole close enough to make a joint shadow with it. And behind these, he was able to stand unseen, and from this vantage point to observe the several windows, side and front and ground and second floor. Through one of the front windows above, he saw his mother moving about as though she were quite at home there. And a moment later, to his astonishment, he saw Esta come to one of their two windows and put a package down on the sill. She appeared to have on only a light dressing gown or a wrap drawn about her shoulders. He was not mistaken this time. He actually started as he realized that it was she also that his mother was in there with her, and yet what had she done that she must come back and hide away in this manner? Had her husband, the man she had run away with, deserted her? Well, yes, yes, he, he has. We all knew that was coming from the jump, and I'm sorry, Clyde, that you are not wise to the ways of the world yet, but you will be, and these actor types, as I have explained time and again, are no goodniks, each and every one of them. And you get your Franco types with those doe eyes and the, the pouty lips, and they're the worst of the lot. He used her and threw her away. He was so intensely curious that he decided to wait a while outside here to see if his mother might not come out, and then he himself would call on Esta. He wanted so much to see her again, to know what this mystery was all about. He waited, thinking, how he had always liked Esther, and how strange it was that she should be here, hiding away in this mysterious way. Oh, I don't like that. Hiding away in this mysterious way. Why not just say hiding in this mysterious way? Then you don't have the way-way repetition. I'm going to write a letter to the publisher and see if they will take that suggestion. After an hour, his mother came out, her basket apparently empty, for she held it lightly in her hand. And just as before, she looked cautiously about her, her face wearing that same stolid and yet care-stamped expression which it always wore these days, a cross between an uplifting faith and a troublesome doubt. And then, and then see there, in the very next paragraph, you redeem yourself, Ted, a cross between an uplifting faith and a troublesome doubt. And that, too, is the story of this nation. Which, it, you know, look, I think this is Teddy's American novel, right? I don't, know what else, I don't know what else he's written, but it's called An American Tragedy. It's about the nation. We've seen the tension between the sacred and the profane. But, you know, I think a lot of this book, at least the undercurrents, are about the tension in the religious current that pulses in the American vein. Clyde watched her as she proceeded to walk south on Beaudry Street toward the mission. After she was well out of sight, he turned and entered the house. Inside, as he had surmised, 
he found a collection of furnished rooms, nameplates, some of which bore the names of the rumors pasted upon them. Since he knew that the southeast front room upstairs contained Esther, he proceeded there and knocked. And true enough, a light footstep responded within, and presently, after some little delay, which seemed to suggest some quick preparation within, the door opened slightly, and Esther peeped out, quizzically at first, then with a little cry of astonishment and some confusion, for as inquiry and caution disappeared, he realized that she was looking at Clyde, and at once she opened the door wide. Why, Clyde, she called. How did you come to find me? I was just thinking of you. Clyde at once put his arms around her and kissed her. At the same time, he realized, and with a slight sense of shock and dissatisfaction, that she was considerably changed. She was thinner, paler, her eyes almost sunken, and not any better dressed than when he had seen her last. She appeared nervous and depressed. One of the first thoughts that came to him now was where her husband was. Why wasn't he here? What had become of him? As, she looked, as he looked about and at her, he noticed that Esther's look was one of confusion and uncertainty, not unmixed with a little satisfaction at seeing him. Her mouth was partly open because of a desire to smile and to welcome him, but her eyes showed that she was contending with a problem. Well, I, well, what is the problem? Because she doesn't appear to be pregnant. Unless she's early in, in the pregnancy, I don't know. But perhaps I was mistaken there, but <clears throat> then Mr. Dreiser introduces the notion of a problem, and I think to myself, uh, maybe I was correct after all. Shall we read on? A little bit. Just a bit. <clears throat> I didn't expect you here, she added, quickly, the moment he released her. You didn't see... Then she paused, catching herself at the brink of some information which evidently she didn't wish to impart. Yes, I did, too. I saw Ma, he replied. That's how I came to know you were here. I saw her coming out just now, and I saw you up here through the window. He did not care to confess that he'd been following and watching his mother for an hour. But when did you get back, he went on. It's a wonder you wouldn't let the rest of us know something about you. Gee, you're a dandy you are, going away and staying months and never letting any one of us know anything. You might have written me a little something anyhow. We always got along pretty well, didn't we? His glance was quizzical, curious, imperative. She, for her part, felt recessive and thence evasive, uncertain quite what to think or say or tell. It's interesting that he just darts inside her brain for a moment. You know, he's with Clyde, he's with Clyde, he's with Clyde, he's with Clyde. Then he just darts inside her little noggin to see how she's feeling, but he doesn't really give us any more information. He is unspooling, as I said. She uttered, I couldn't think who it might be. No one comes here, but my, how nice you look, Clyde. You've got such nice clothes now, and you're getting taller. Mama was telling me you're working at the Green Davidson. She looked at him admiringly, and he was properly impressed by her notice of him. At the same time, he could not get his mind off her condition. He could not cease looking at her face, her eyes, her thin, fat body. 
and as he looked at her waist and her gaunt face, he came to a very keen realization that all was not well with her. <clears throat> here we go. Here comes the... Here it comes, folks. Here's the sentence. Here it is. All was not well with her. She was going to have a child. And hence the thought recurred to him. Where was her husband? Or at any rate, the man she had eloped with. Her original note, according to her mother, had said that she was going to get married. Yet now he sensed quite clearly that she was not married. She was deserted, left in this miserable room here alone. He saw it, felt it, understood it. And with that, we will close this episode. Look, it doesn't take a genius to figure out she got knocked up, but this genius figured it out. I so rarely get ahead of stories. Martha is much better at that than I am. I always get surprised, even though I shouldn't. I'm a writer, after all. I should be able to figure out puzzle pieces. Not so much. Not so much. Anyhow, it's good for, you know, for a fellow reading a book for the first time. I don't want to get ahead of it. But I did get ahead of this piece of it. And I guess now we know what happened to Hester, also known as Esther. That's good. That's a nice little piece of information for us to chew over until the next episode is released. And uh, yeah, we'll leave it there on another extra conversational. And now I'm referring back to the dude who just sat down with me at my fucking table at Taco Bell to talk to me. Episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.